Chapter Seventeen of Colonel Greatheart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Colonel Greatheart by H. C. Bailey. Chapter Seventeen. Ingeminating Peace. A disorderly crowd in the meadows beyond Wadham was disturbed by Colonel Stow. He required the officers, nay, any officer, of Audley's horse. And the troopers of Audley's horse, lounging with dice and tankard before their slovenly tents, bade him to Beelzebub, with whom their officers ought to be, or to the ship in the corn market, where doubtless they were. Colonel Stowe rode off. But he left behind him Alcibiade and Matthew Mark, and they were soon putting up a tent. They were approached by some slouching troopers, who, coats all undone, hose gaping at the knee, stood aloof and eyed them with distrust, muttering. Then one cried out, Looky, my buck, what be doing here? Alcibiade had a mallet in his mouth. Matthew Mark, the pessimist, made the reply. Gentlemen's, said he, what does anyone do here? Tell me, then, I do not understand her, your war. She is like a bad dream. They guffawed at him. Nothing could be more absurd than being foreign. If you could see yourselves, you would not laugh at me, Coquins, said Matthew Mark bitterly. But yes, I am droll. To come to such a war, such soldiers. He flung up his arms at them, and turned to the tent again with the haste of despair. Alcibiade straightened himself, grinned at them, jerked his thumb knowingly at Matthew Mark, and grinned again. He wants everything better than it is made, gentlemen, even you. It is an impossible, that dear Matthew Mark. But tell then, Alcibiade too was interested in these unsoldierly soldiers, at what hour is your troop drill, and your squadron drill how often? They guffawed again. You be an innocent. Innocent of all but sin, gentlemen, said Alcibiade politely. But Enfin, you have your parades, parfois? Hark ye, innocent. We cavaliers do need no foreigners' drillings. We be gentlemen. We do fight. I felicitate the enemy, said Alcibiade. And what do you fight for? Find your own horse and two shillings a day. Alcibiade waved his hand. That is no matter for the gentleman soldado. Your cause, messieurs, your faith. They nudged one another and looked at one another with stupid grins, and agreed that Alcibiade was a natural. While they were enjoying the thought of that, one changed the subject with a simple rudeness. What be that tent for? For your colonel, gentlemen, said Alcibiade, and saluted at the name. The shaggy jaws dropped. Be your master a foreigner like to you? says one in a surly amazement. He is English altogether. It is his one fault. But he will make you a regiment such as your country has not, a sweet regiment. They were in no way rejoiced. If he do try foreign tricks with us, I am sorry for he, says one. Messieurs, said Alcibiade sweetly, when I look at you, I also am sorry for him. But if you do try tricks with him, I am very sorry for you. They gaped and glowered at Alcibiade a while, and then slouched off to impart the ill news. Alcibiade returned to the tent and Matthew Mark. Matthew Mark was interjectional in his own tongue. What a nation! What animals! 
What a war! Tell me, Alcibiade, he struck an attitude of despair, why do we waste on these stupids our skill? We seek always honor. If we can made soldiers of these, it is honor indeed, said Alcibiade. But even he was something chilled by these slovenly cavaliers. Myself, I would like to know why these gentlemen fight at all. Now, with Gustav, one fought for the religion, and with Bernard, to make him a kingdom. And one believed in them. But these, they believe in nothing. In their shilling a day, said Matthew Mark, and made scornful noises like a sheep. The others, the enemies, I wonder if they know why they fight, said Alcibiade pensively. It will make a difference. One may not suppose that Matthew Mark, or even Alcibiade, always ready to talk of what they believed, understood the profundities of the English heart. But they knew the temper of conquering armies, and even Alcibiade whistled a mournful lay as he drew the guy-ropes fast. There were others jovial enough. The officers of Audley's horse knew no care. Their credit was good yet from the sack of Marlborough, and the ship gave them all they needed. Being the forenoon, it was no more than a gallon of spiced wine and a bowl of ale with toasted crabs swimming in it. Cornet Sackville and Captain Sedley and Captain Godfrey, three lads of little beard but with faces stained already and voices going husky, were pleased to pipe up. We be soldiers three. Pardonnez-moi, chez vous en pray. Lately come forth, o oh, the low country, with never a penny of money. Fa-la-la-la-lantido-dilly and the others broke off their game of hazard to beat time with the pewter. Here, good fellow, I drink to thee. Pardonnez-moi, chez vous en prêt. To all good fellows, wherever they be, with never a penny of money. Fa-la-la-la-lantido-dilly. To which came with an explosive entry Major Dick Stewart. He flung his hat down on the dice, and himself into a chair that creaked. Perdition, lads! Odds fire! Damnation! and he drank off a pint of the wine. "'Speak for yourself, Major,' piped Cornet Sackville. "'Odds blood, if I do not speak for you all, you be no men but so many sheep's kidneys. Oh, split me that I should live to see it. A sour, stiff-backed, swell-head Jack Pudding from Germany to command us. Us! Oh, burn me, tis enough to make old Sam Audley ride back on a gridiron to card him.' The rest had no mind to cool his wrath. Viejo Diablo, says Captain Sedley, who had a rarefied taste in oaths, would the king have us learn the high Dutch? Nay, the calf is English-born, a Jeremiah stow. Jeremiah under the fifth rib smite and spare not bare bones. Zounds! He should be with Mandeville and Nal Cromwell. The name is an insult to the regiment. Insult, quotha, Major Dick Stewart made away with another pint. Odds bones, tis a vile outrage, and the lad that doth not resent it is a white-livered prigster. Are we rats that the Palatine should foist a broken bully from Germany on us? Was there no gentleman in the regiment good enough to be its colonel? Odd rot me, lads, we'll roast this white cuckoo roundly. Ho! Ho! roared Captain Godfrey, in the manner of one cheering on dogs to bait a bear. The door was opened. Grave and entirely calm, Colonel Stowe gazed upon these flushed, agitated gentlemen. "'Who are you, milk-face?' cried Major Stewart. "'You are the gentleman of Audley's horse,' said Captain Stowe, and on the answering shout saluted. "'I have the pleasure to be your colonel.' 
Major Stewart put his elbow into the ribs of Captain Godfrey, who did the like for Cornet Sackville. The gentleman of Audley's horse began to laugh at Colonel Stowe, and laughed in volleys. Colonel Stowe leaned against the doorpost, caressed his beard, and smiled upon them kindly. I fear, said he in the first lull, I fear I shall want new officers in my regiment. He looked them over with plain contempt, which was multiplied as his eye rested on the purple amplitude of Major Dick Stewart. Major, says he in a calm, small voice, you have rested so long in the tavern that the regiment has forgot what you look like. Go and show them. Major Dick Stewart flung himself back in his chair, dashed his spurred heels into the floor, and was understood to bid his colonel seek perdition. Colonel Stowe laughed. If I do not obey you, I am a Christian, said he. But, and the tone hardened, if you do not obey me, you are broke. Get to your duty. The major glared, and his neck swelled. He seemed to desire to swear. Colonel Stowe continued to regard him with a perfect calm. He heaved himself out of his chair and stood over Colonel Stowe. Make me a return of the damaged pistol locks by sundown, said Colonel Stowe, and turned from him with contempt. Major Stewart plunged out. The rest of them were whispering together. Colonel Stowe, preserving always the extreme of quiet in his manner, walked to the table, picked a pipe with care, filled it from his own silver box, and lit it and composed himself comfortably in Major Stewart's chair. Then the little Cornet Sackville did the like himself, with a comical affectation of Colonel Stowe's manner, and concluded by arranging himself in a chair precisely opposite Colonel Stowe, whom he ogled. The rest ranged themselves in a half-circle, and stared at the Colonel as if he were a show. "'Cat to do,' says Captain Sedley. "'The Colonel has very large feet.' "'But how sweet a nose,' said Cornet Sackville affectionately. "'And what long ears!' cried Captain Godfrey. Colonel Stowe smoked on, silent and calm. "'Madonna!' quoth Captain Sedley. "'He is quite tame, our Colonel.' "'Blessed are the meek,' said Cornet Sackville with unction. "'Had they no use for cowards in Germany, Colonel?' inquired Captain Godfrey. Colonel Stowe continued to smoke. He dropped his words lazily between puffs. "'It is very natural you should all desire the honour of crossing swords with me.' but i have no reason to think you deserve it i shall concede you a chance which gentleman bears himself most soldierly in the next fight i shall permit to try my sword-play you sirrah he singled out captain godfrey go make my compliments to prince rupert and assure him in my name i'll have the regiment in hand by to-morrow captain godfrey gaped at him turned for inspiration to his comrades who had none and shambled out the others, on whom gloom was plainly descending, muttered together again. "'Sir,' says Captain Sedley, with an aggrieved air, "'Sir, we would have you know we are gentlemen and will be treated for such.' "'You shall be till you make it impossible,' said Captain Stowe, and finished his pipe. Then he rose. "'Well, gentlemen, you will understand me in time. I understand you now, which is the chief matter. The regiment parades at five. Then he went back to his regiment and mingled with the troopers, who found him a new kind of officer. He treated them as men. He was concerned for their fortunes. He desired to listen to their grumbles of rations and pay, and was not fool enough to believe all they said. Such a colonel was vastly impressive to the soldiers of the army of the king. 
They turned out on parade with a smartness that disgusted their officers. Then Colonel Stow made an oration. You know nothing of me, gentlemen. I have fought fourteen campaigns and borne my own regiment through six. It is my habit to see that my regiment fares as well as the best and deserves it. Whereafter, till sundown, he put them through a drill the like of which they had never known. It was the opinion of the troopers when, sweating and stiff, they came back to water their horses, that their colonel was a tough fellow. But their colonel thought less of them. In days that followed, Colonel Stowe taught them tribulation. They were schooled as never soldiers of the king had been schooled before, and they did not affect to enjoy it. But to their surprise it bred in them a queer surly affection for him. Indeed, if he harried them it was plainly for their good, and for their good he harried others, too. My lord Percy, who was master of the victualling as well as the ordnance, did not hide his disgust with a colonel who expected something of him and got it. Before a week was out, Sir James Griffin, the paymaster, found himself recalling the parable of the importunate widow, and Sir James was a man of religion. The officers of Colonel Stowe approved these proceedings in no particular. They condemned him for an ungentlemanly frowardness. A fellow thus troubled by the base concerns of common troopers was plainly of low blood, but they found it extraordinarily difficult to convince Colonel Stowe of his inferiority. Attempts to make him ridiculous recoiled like an ill-backed petard with general disaster. The fascinating dream of common mutiny was shattered for ever by Prince Rupert's jovial confidence to Captain Godfrey that the man who made trouble for Colonel Stowe could count on an enemy. The courtiers might mock at the Palatine, but no man in the army invited his anger till there were twenty leagues between them. Brave souls like my Lord Goring might dare it then. So Colonel Stowe's officers were sulkily submissive, an air which became them mighty ill. Such of them as were sportsmen, and had some feeling for their trade, saw the regiment quicken under his hand, and were aggrieved with themselves for being pleased. What Colonel Stowe thought of his regiment and his army he kept to himself, for it was as strange an army as King ever used to vindicate his majesty. There were indeed those in it who believed in him passionately as in their God. There were those less devout who yet counted all well lost for him. There were more who felt their own lordship over the common herd linked indissolubly with his kingdom and who fought for him keenly as for themselves. But these all told made but few, and the mass of that army cared no more for king than for Puritan, and knew less of war than the Morris dance. They were soldiers neither from a fierce zeal nor by trade. They were the loungers at bull-baitings, the idlers and broken men of village and town, who ran to war as they would have run to a street brawl. Never an army knew less of its business, and its general, the Palatine, who was not the man to make good soldiers out of sots and fools, nor had he the chance. He must needs fret the best of his strength away in fighting the good gentlemen of the council, who conceived themselves statesmen and generals by divine inspiration, and, having but little matter of state left them to occupy with, took hold of strategy and the government of war. Not first of generals nor last, Rupert found his most troublesome foes of his own party, and he had not the temper to wear them out. If Rupert had a plan of campaign, my lord Digby was instant to the king with another. The king spoke both fairly and thwarted both. That was the royal conception of majesty, 
to trust no man and to hold himself secret from every man. He moved in a mysterious way, because it was his divine right, and certainly he performed wonders. Inasmuch he was a monarch and God's proxy, he could not commit his sacred designs to men nor tell them the truth. Double-faced through good and ill, he lamented continually the harshness of his friends, and solemnly likened his foes to them that slew the Christ. With such a bloody method and behavior, their ancestors did crucify our Saviour. So he wrote in a poem that would be blasphemous if it were not too stupid. It was ill-fighting for a king who could not conceive that any man had the right to require honesty of him. "'By God, sir!' cried Rupert, once in a blaze of passion. "'The chief traitor to King Charles is King Charles himself.' Outwardly that was forgiven, but the king did not suffer himself to forget. Never afterward could he believe Rupert loyal. He solemnly added another to the list of woes which he kept with zealous precision. Played the kindly uncle to Rupert, and believed no word, he said. It may not have been the wise way for a king to deal with his general, but King Charles was above human wisdom. This quarrel came when the king, swayed by the sapience of my lord Digby, was pleased to consider he had army enough. Rupert desired to enroll new regiments afoot. My lord Digby, who grudged everything that gave the Palatine power, persuaded the king that if the army could not sweep the Puritans away, it was the fault of its general, and that the money for the new regiments were better spent in diplomacy. In fact, that it was a derogation from the divine majesty to believe a larger army needed. The king saw in this queer notion a subtlety, and it captivated him as usual. So you find Colonel Royston, with a commission to form a regiment, instructed that no regiment was to be formed. In a cold rage he went off to Rupert. He would have forced a quarrel, he says, if he could, but with the first sneer Rupert himself broke out. Thunder of God, man, swear at me and have done. I swear at myself that I am fool enough to stay here. If you have any honor, lose it. If you have any loyalty, break it, and by hell you shall live the happier. He drank heavily from the flagon at his elbow. When the king played him false, he was apt to fly to wine. He pushed a bottle across the table to Royston, and the two of them in the worst temper with all the world got vastly drunk together. You conceive Royston in a sorry state the next day. The gloom of things he beheld in aching discomfort twice as black. It was obvious in his aspect. He was not inclined to take meekly Colonel Stowe's shake of the head and small reproving smile. A fine lusty fool you have made of me, Jerry, he growled, and called defiantly for a tankard of dog's nose. Colonel Stowe shrugged. Wine is a mocker, he remarked. And what a murrain have I to do but drink, cried Royston. Colonel Stowe opened his eyes and said something about a regiment. Royston swore profusely at the world. Regiment! I have no regiment and shall have none. By heaven, I was a fool to follow you. I might have known you would feather your nest, and I should go howling. What else have I ever had by you? Colonel Stowe was grave. It may be so, George, he said at last with something like a sigh. I did not think to have heard you say it. Royston gave an ugly laugh and drank again. Then he put down the tankard with a bang. Bah! I am a churl, Jerry, and the Palantine has a better head for liquor than I. But my temper is broke, I think. Faith! There is some reason for a man that has been diddled like me. 
and he told how the king had forbidden the raising of one regiment more. Colonel Stow cursed his king for a fool. Then he looked wistfully at his friend. I wish to God you had my place, George. Oh, have done with that, cried Royston impatiently. But I gad, Jerry, I'll wager we are come to the wrong side. I'll not believe that, said Colonel Stow. There are men worth making here. But faith, George, if you wish yourself out of it, I can scarce bid you stay now. Will you go? Royston hesitated some while and often afterward, as he hints, wished that he had taken the occasion and given his friend a good-bye. But, I'll see it out, he growled, and he gave a queer laugh of contempt. Colonel Stow gripped at his hand with glad enthusiasm. Faith, you were made for a friend, George, says he in a low voice. Royston laughed again. He despised himself on many counts. It was a foolishness to stay where neither money was to be won nor name. It was a foolishness to be governed by friendship. It was worst foolishness of all that friendship should be mingled with what mocked it, a shameful care for the woman of his friend's love. Lucinda, who was surely very sorry for it at the last, had power with Colonel Royston, and he despised himself and stayed. Strange company for those gentlemen volunteers, who, splendid, undisciplined, and useless as brave, filled up the army of the king. The gentlemen volunteers had no doubt of the issue of the war. It was as certain that the king would conquer, as that neither horse nor foot could stand up for their charge. They looked for utter victory and the stamping out of Puritans and the rule absolute of their divine king. There was a fair array in Oxford of some such faith as this. Even Rupert had still in his sanest hours a vast confidence in himself. The rout at Marston had hurt his pride and taught him the grip of fear. But if he was soured by it, he was soon his own master again. He bore his work hard, and the politicians fretted him into black hours, but he could not longer together doubt himself an unconquerable artist in war. He and his friends all counted on triumph, and did earnestly desire it. The politicians, my Lord Digby, Mr. Hyde, and the rest, quarrelling with him on all else, were agreed in this. The unhindered rule of the king, no less, was their goal, and as some of them seemed to march to it by strange ways, they were entirely sure of attaining. But the most of them, the great mass of the army, knew no such flaming faith. They fought because it was the game, and when the game was no more amusing, would give it up light of heart. Whether king ruled or puritan troubled them little. England would be a fat, pleasant country still. There were some, too, not the least wise, not the least honest, who, while they fought against the Puritan, feared the triumph of the king. Men who loved England and sane life better than any passionate creed, they saw no end to the war in the victory of either army, no future for England under either sway. It is not always the men of low spirit who rank with the Laodiceans. When he walked the meadows at dawn one day, Colonel Stowe saw a gentleman of a disorderly dress and a bent back who went uncomfortably. His black hair was all unkempt, his face of an unwholesome darkness. He knit his hands behind him strenuously and talked to himself. The matter of his discourse was but one word. In a shrill and sad accent he ingeminated, Peace, peace. Colonel Stowe passed him and saw the melancholy of his eyes. It was my Lord Falkland, the Secretary of State. 
Colonel Stowe watched him a while and went away thoughtful. End of chapter 17